All right. Well, welcome back. I know uh, I forgot to tell you where to turn in your Bibles this morning, but I figured we could do that right now. We're going to be kind of primarily focusing on two texts. The first one is Joshua 1.8. So if you want to turn to Joshua 1.8, that'll be the first one that we're going to kind of lay out there before us. And then the second one, if you want to turn in the New Testament to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, stick your finger there, or a piece of paper, something that, uh, that you don't lose it. Uh, and again, I really am glad to know that you are out there, New Breed Church. And of course, if you are a guest with us, I am glad that you are out there too. And so this morning, what we're going to try to do is that, you know, I, first thing I want to do this morning is give you the text. And I think it's a beautiful text. You know, I preached about legacy out of Joshua a few weeks ago. And this is, again, out of Joshua. So you might think I'm kind of in love with Joshua. And in a, in a way, I am. I do relate to Joshua in a lot of ways. But in Joshua, in one, chapter 1, verse 8, at the very beginning of the time that God is going to begin to use Joshua to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, he says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For this, and then you will have good success. I thought, man, what an interesting way to start a journey into a new land. He doesn't give them a war plan. He doesn't give them a direction. What he gives them is hope. And he said that hope comes out of this book of the law. And then if you take that into the New Testament, this is not something that we lose throughout Scripture. Philippians, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I want you to notice that in both of those texts, there's a, there are words that pop out to us. These ideas of meditating on and thinking about. But if you look at that, there's also a yielded fruit and there's prosperity tied to it. The words prosper are tied to it. And, and I just want to say this morning, I thank Pastor Lance. I thank him for his, his passionate uh, uh, teaching on the model prayer last week. If you remember, Pastor Lance challenged us on three different things, three different levels. Number one, he said, put some respect on his name. Number two, he said, put our mind on the kingdom. And number three, he said, put our soul. And I loved it when he said that. I don't know about you, but I wrote soul two ways. I wrote it S-O-L-E and S-O-U-L. I don't know, it just, it, that's the way it triggered me, Pastor Lance, and I thank you for that. Put our soul satisfaction in the Savior. So what I'd like to do today is I want to take us along that same line of prayer and tag into it with the biblical and the spiritual discipline of meditation. And here's our big idea, uh, brothers and sisters. We are made to meditate. We are made to meditate. God designed us with the capacity to pause and ponder. He, mean, he means for us not to just, but to reflect on what he says. It's a distinctively human trait to, to stop uh, and consider and to chew on something with the teeth of our minds and our hearts, to roll some reality around in our thoughts and, and press it deeply into our feelings, to look from, from different angles and seek to get a better sense of its significance. 
And brothers and sisters, the biblical name for this art is meditation. It's meditation. Uh, Brother Don Whitney defines meditation as, listen to this, listen to the words, it's so critical. Deep thinking, deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. I want you to notice that it's not a mystical, metaphysical thing that we're talking about here. It's richer than that. And, and just for the sake of, of, of my sister Candace being here because I love her to death, I thought as we do some of the context, I want to do a little word background. So the words that we're, we're digging out here today, one of the Hebrew words that we're going to be looking at is hagah. Hagah. It's to muse, it's to growl, it's to moan, it's to utter you see it in Job 27. You see it in Jeremiah 48.1. You see it all throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs and Isaiah. The other one in the Hebrew that we're going to look at is suach. It means to muse. And it, it further expands its usage by, by, it's a verb. Okay, it's a verb meaning to bow down, to be downcast. And oftentimes it refers to the despair of one's soul. You can find that thought in Genesis 24:63. And then from the Greek, melateo, melateo, to care for, to practice, to study. You find that in Acts 4:25 and 1 Timothy 4:15. Listen, other words can also be translated meditate, but they are basically derivatives from those words that we just kind of took a look at, okay? So, I just wanted to set those words out in front of us. You say, "Ah, well, do we really need that?" Yeah, I think we do. I think it's important to understand the biblical words and where they come from. Now, I want you to, to, to muse with me on this idea of meditation. I want to think about this for a minute because, you know, people say, well, really, where do we find this? Well, I'm going to give you a quick few examples again at the context. The first person that we see meditating, brothers and sisters, in the Bible is Isaac. Isaac. It says he was meditating suach in a field when the Lord brought his wife Rebekah to him. You find that in Genesis 24:63, And it's interesting, Nile and I were talking this morning about the translations. In the CSB, that word is rendered walking. But yet it's an asterisk, and if you go down to the notes, it tells you that the word there is actually meditate. He was meditating or praying. You know, Isaac was, was the son that God promised to Abraham and Sarah. And while we know a lot about Abraham's amazing faith, Isaac had his own personal journey with God. Isaac was what we would consider a little bit too old to be a bachelor, but there he was. Waiting on the Lord's provision for a wife. And he was in the midst of the death of his mother, meditating and waiting when God brought Rebekah to him. The next time we see it is with Joshua. I love Joshua because after Moses died, the Lord gave instructions to Joshua, Moses' aid. And one instruction was to meditate on the book of the law. We, we just read that text. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. Hagah, day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So we see that in Joshua 1.8. And again, as I said earlier, in these examples, meditating on God's Word results in doing all that is written in it, yielding fruit and prospering. So there really is something to this idea of meditation. And listen, we can't slide by without mentioning David, a man after God's own heart. You know, I read from, from, from the psalm this morning, and you think about just the fact that God knows every thought on our minds. He's with us. He knows us. And David is meditating on those very thoughts of God. 
when he's thinking about that. But the thing that really grabbed me was when I looked at Psalm 143. And David meditated on his past experiences with God when his current experience was overwhelming. Brothers and sisters, what do you do when your current experience is overwhelming? What do you think on? David says, therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old, and here it is. I meditate, Hagah, on all your doings, and I muse on all the work of your hands. When you're struggling, is that where your heart runs? So listen, I want you to understand something because we think of this idea of meditation, why it's so critical to me. God declares, or the scripture declares God's thoughts. He says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But in that context, brothers and sisters, we're also told to be of the same mind toward one another. Which means, essentially, that we must develop and maintain the mind of Christ or God's thoughts. We as His followers are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together in the faith of the gospel. But here's the thing that I was mulling on this week. But if my thoughts are contrary to God's, then I must exchange my thinking with God's. And for that process, he has given us his inspired, his inerrant, his authoritative word. You know, we, we toss those words out, and a lot of times as, as, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we use those words as hammers. I don't think they're meant to be hammers. I mean, the word of God is inerrant. The word of God is inspired. The word of God is authoritative. I don't need to beat you with that. It is that. And so I want to encourage that. So then, what is our need? Well, brothers and sisters, I would say that we are to study the Scripture. But for that to be effective, we also need to develop the art of biblical meditation. Psalm 1, verse 2, puts it this way, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The psalmist writes in Psalm 4, 4, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Now, I'm going to take a chance here, y'all. If I were the devil, no, no, no comment. I can hear the chuckling and I, they're not even here. If I were the devil, listen, I would do my best to divide and fragment the thinking of the church of Jesus Christ. I would try to get God's people confused as to who they are and why they're here. I would try to get them preoccupied with other things. I would try to get them to live independently, to think like the world thinks, to think like the natural man thinks, in the futility of his mind. In other words, I would like to keep people away from serious involvement with the Word of God. I would want to keep their relationship to God's Word superficial and secondary. Someone has said that the adversary majors in three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. The adversary majors in three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. But he also has a number of cultural values or belief systems 
actually illusions and snares that he uses to confuse and manipulate the church so that it must, of necessity, fall, fail in its calling and purpose whenever it operates under these illusions. It's called spiritual warfare, y'all. We got to know our enemy. You know, we wander around every day thinking that, you know, this is fate, this is coincidence, this stuff just happens. When the Bible clearly tells us that there is a spiritual battle going on in the heavenlies. There's a battle with principalities, dominions, and principalities. It's happening, and we sit back sometimes, church, and we don't think about the spiritual warfare. We don't know our enemies. But when we look at the Scripture, it constantly reminds us to be like soldiers. Why soldiers? Why warriors? Because there's a spiritual war going on. And each of these things are opposed to and work against developing and maintaining the mind of Christ through studying and meditating on the Word. Those things, those noise, hurry, and crowds, they're designed to keep us out of the Word, which is so essential to our ability to avoid the delusions, the delusions of Satan and the world system, and to hear and respond to the call of God in our lives. And all of this brings me to our teaching for this morning. I believe that the spiritual discipline of meditation is the missing link, the missing link between Bible intake, hearing God, and prayer, speaking to God. And I also contend that it's sorely lacking in the church today. I, I pray that I don't offend you in an improper way, but I do feel that it's sorely lacking in the church today. And if you're honest, if you're sitting there today, you're going to go, meditation, when's the last time I thought about meditating? What is this process like? Well, it goes like this, church. After the input of a passage of Scripture, meditation allows us to take what God has said to us and think deeply on it, to digest it, and then to speak to God about it in meaningful prayer. It, it gives us a direction. And, you know, and it brings up the first point that, that, that Lance talked about last week. How do we put some respect on his name? How do Christians meditate? Some of this is going to be so elementary, but some of this may be new. Meditation begins with thinking on Scripture. To meditate properly, our souls must reflect what our minds have ingested and our hearts must rejoice. One of the other things that we forget sometimes, brothers and sisters, is that we meditate on God's glory and nature. You know, we forget in Romans 1, one of the things that he talked about, about those who are out there who don't or haven't believed, he said, look, even if they don't have the Word of God in front of them, all they have to do is look at what has been made. And if nothing else, that should draw them to ask questions about a Creator. We search on the glory and the majesty of God as revealed in natural creation. I, I got to share with you, when I was at Wayside, I was working there one day, and it was a particular, you know, and I found myself heading to do a drug test. One of the things that I had to do is test folks who were in the program and give them drug tests. And I was going to the kitchen to test one of the kitchen workers. And I was walking back toward the back way to avoid Market Street because usually there was a crowd on Market Street and usually they were looking for the shelter coordinator, me. And all they wanted to do was stop you and they wanted to discuss some things. They wanted to talk about all kinds of things. They wanted to talk about maybe why they got uh, removed from the shelter or all kinds of things that, that at that point in time I had to get something else done that I couldn't afford to do. So I was taking that back way to the kitchen and, it, and I passed by the old dilapidated play area. I can see it in my mind for the family shelter. 
Uh, it was a regular bathroom area for many waiting to eat. It was a regular bathroom area for entry into the shelter in the evening too. And the smell was acrid. And on some mornings, it was very, very difficult to walk through without mental preparation. But in this mess, brothers and sisters, there was a, there was a vine that grew. It was a morning glory. Purple morning glories. They were God's gift to me on that day, and I needed it. At God's command, they would close at dusk and return in full flower each morning as the sun warmed the path. I marveled at the workmanship of God's hand. It was breathtaking. The petals were so perfect. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're so perfect. I mean, just the mathematics to create that. They were so delicate. And, and then as the sun shone, you could literally see the tiny veins and the perfect rounded edges that brought the nutrients and the water to the flower. These flowers were not an accident. The intricate design, the beautiful hues of purple and white, the incredible scent and aroma from the heart of a loving and faithful and gracious Father were here to remind me to cast my eyes on Him, to cast my cares on Him because He cared for me. And you know, many of us listening this morning have experienced the same sense of wonder at God's marvelous handiwork. Listen, brothers and sisters, do not miss God. Do not miss God. You say, well, what else, John? Well, meditate on God. You say, well, didn't you just do that? I did, but in a different sense. I meditated on His creative abilities, on the creation of God. We also meditate on God Himself. We regularly need to reflect and meditate on who God is and His works. That was one of the things at the very beginning of Joshua that God was instilling into Joshua so that he could then feed it to the people of God. Psalm 27.4 puts it this way, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Listen, church, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist wanted to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. The psalmist writes, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. I've got to tell you something, church, there's sometimes at night when I wake up, it is so hard because so many things are running through my mind. And I'm so thankful that God has placed those thoughts into my mind in the watches of the night. You know, David writes, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit make a, dil a diligent search. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Listen, listen. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder, meditate on all your work. And meditate on your mighty deeds. Man. How do, I, how do I hallow his name? By thinking on those things. By filling my mind with those things. By, by using those tools, that beauty that God has given me. The very nature of who's, who God is. But I've got to tell you something, church. Christian meditation is different. You know, Brother Lance encourages us to put our mind on the kingdom. And so... I want to talk about Christian meditation because I believe it's different than what's out there today. Since we're made to meditate, we, we should not be surprised to find 
that world religions have seized upon the activity. And there are new schools that try to use it for practical effects. I mean, it's out there to, to help cultivate brain health. It's out there to help lower blood pressure. And I want you to say something, church. Christian meditation, however, is fundamentally different from the meditation popularly co-opted in various non-Christian systems. It does not entail emptying our minds, but rather filling them with biblical and theological substance, brothers and sisters, truth outside of ourselves, and then chewing on the content. Chewing on the content. For the Christian, meditation means having the Word of God, the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3.16 It's not like secular meditation, doing nothing and being turned, tuned into your own mind at the same time. What it is, though, is feeding our minds on the Word of God and then digesting them slowly, savoring the texture, enjoying the juices, cherishing, cherishing the flavor of the rich fare that the Lord has laid in front of us. Meditation, listen, meditation church that is truly Christian is guided by the gospel. It's shaped by the scriptures. It's reliant upon the Holy Spirit and it's exercised in faith. Can I give that to you one more time? Christian Meditation is guided by the gospel, shaped by the scriptures, relying on the Holy Spirit and exercised in faith. Beloved, man does not live by bread alone. And meditation is slowly relishing the meal. Christian meditation must be distinguished from the sort that we find in Eastern religions or New Age fads. And so if you allow me, I want to give you some distinctions that we can keep in mind as we think about this church. Because my, my main goal today is to build disciples, to build us up, to look more like Jesus. That's what we're doing this morning. I want to empower and strengthen disciples through the Word of God. And one of the ways that we do that is not like through the Eastern Meditations. You know, Eastern meditation, it advocates emptying the mind. Now, if you're around here and you've been through college and you've been through school, you remember you had to talk about some of these in the philosophy classes. We've even seen it in some of the classes. It's their classes that are taught in meditation. But it, it basically advocates emptying the mind. Christian meditation calls on us to fill our mind with God and his truth. Nowhere in the Bible, church, is the mind described as evil. I can't find it. The mind is not described as evil or unworthy of being the means by which God communicates with his people. What the Bible does denounce is intellectual pride, but not the intellect itself. It is humility that we need, brothers and sisters, not ignorance. And I stand opposed to arrogant and cynical intellectualism. But that is not the same as using the mind God has given us with the help of the Holy Spirit and the instruction of Scripture, listen, church, to evaluate and discern and to critically assess what is happening in both the church and in our world. Listen, we're sitting here right now wrapped up in a, in a national, in a worldwide pandemic. We're sitting here right now wrapped up in a battle, uh, once again, with the issues of racism. But I'm saying to the church this morning, what I just said is so critically important. 
We use and meditate on the scripture so that we can evaluate, discern, and critically assess what's happening, both in the church and in the world. And today, if you notice anything, church, in our current time, it is critical that we as Christian followers rightly evaluate, discern, and critically assess what is happening. And I say this with a broken heart because, you know, I, I don't get on Facebook much. The only time I get on Facebook is when I see some things by the, by the body of Christ. I, I do maintain to look at our website or our Facebook page. And sometimes when you get there, of course, it kicks you to other places. And it just, it's hard for me because I've been in this area for a long time and I know a lot of people that are on Facebook. And right now it seems that we have a disconnect, church, at times from our thinking and our mouths. And, and I connect that to what I just said. We should be using the truth in the scriptures, meditating on those things from God to clearly assess and evaluate what's going on and to speak truth into those situations and to live truth into those situations. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates mental passivity, Christian meditation calls on us to actively exert our mental energy. This is nowhere stated better than Philippians 4.8 where I read that. Here Paul encourages us to what? Let our mind dwell on whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute. Those things that are excellent, worthy of praise, and are to be the targets of our mental aim. Church, it's not enough merely to acknowledge the things and ideas of moral and mental excellence that, they, that they're important. It's not, it's not enough. Merely affirming such truths and virtues will benefit us little in times like today. Church, we have to energetically give deliberative weight to these things. Our minds must be captivated by them in such a way, church, that listen, the tawdry, the sleazy, the fictitious, the fanciful fluff of the world loses its appeal to the disciples of Jesus. You know, I, I mentioned that verse to you, but I want to show you something. I'm, I'm pulling out my wallet. I've got a, a note card in my wallet. Lynn will tell you, I've had this for a long time. When I struggled with some issues of myself, when my father had died with depression, I went to a counselor and he literally gave me this verse. And he told me to make a card, John. And on this card, I have lovely, commendable, moral, praiseworthy, true, honorable, just, pure. And the thing that he said was, and of course, Philippians over here, 4, 8, and 9, on the other side, Colossians, take every thought captive. And he said the purpose of this meditation, this thinking, is when you're struggling, when you're having hard times, he said, get out of yourself and think on these things. And the point I'm making with this is, here I am 20 years later, and I still have this folded up and in my wallet. Why is it there? Because I still use it. The Word of God helps me in those times of struggle, in those times of darkness, in those times of need. And this is what we have in opposed to Eastern meditation. This is very practical, functional stuff. It changes the perspective of your mind. It shifts where you're thinking to the things of God. It moves you from your belly to the throne. 
Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates detachment from the world, Christian meditation calls for attachment to God. If the believer disengages from the distractions and the allurements of the world, it is in order that he or she might engage with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates visualization to create one's own reality, Christian meditation calls for visualization of the reality that already exists by God. Huge difference. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates metaphysical union with small g God, Christian meditation calls for spiritual communion with God. Unlike Eastern meditation, which advocates an inner journey to find the center of one's being, Christian meditation calls for, a, for, it calls for an outward focus on the objective revelation of God in Scripture and creation. Man, that's solid ground. Unlike meditation, which advocates uh, uh, mystical transport as the goal of one eff one's efforts, Christian meditation calls for, listen church, calls for moral transformation as the goal of our efforts. So I've, I've given you what it's not. We've talked a little bit about putting some putting some hallow on God's name. What about this idea of uh, putting your soul satisfaction in the Savior? Well, what kind of practical thoughts can, I, can you give me? Well, I want to say something here as I go on because I want to talk about some practicalities of developing this spiritual gift of meditation. But I've got to be very clear here. If you're watching this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, everything that I'm saying to you this morning will not make sense to you. A matter of fact, I hate to say this, you will not understand it. I'm not being harsh. Please hear me in this. I'm not being harsh. What I'm saying is only those who are born again, adopted heirs of the kingdom, can meditate in this way. Because the Bible clearly tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. The Bible clearly tells us that spiritually we are dead. That's our struggle. And that's how everybody begins. Because the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, you can be sitting there and visiting for the first time. You say, okay, this man is now going to call me out and call me a sinner. Listen to me, I'm a sinner that was saved by grace. We all start out as sinners. And that means that we're separated from God because God is holy. God can have nothing to do with sin. That's our struggle. He's there, but he, he's, he, he, he has to keep his distance from sinful things. But yet he's still gracious and merciful to us. What an incredible God that is. And the incredible thing is that God's plan, when you begin to meditate on his word and you realize from the beginning of time, from Genesis in chapter 3, God tells us, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. You can't do what I'm asking you to do. There are still expectations. There are still responsibilities. I am still God, but you can't do it. And so in my plan, I am going to do this. I am going to send someone who will live the life that you can't live. I'm going to send someone who is a perfect sacrifice.
I'm going to send someone and I'm going to take your sin and place it on that perfect sacrifice. And the aroma from that sacrifice is going to please me. And I'm going to put that sacrifice to death. And I'm going to accept that sacrifice. And I'm going to show my acceptance by when you put him in the grave, I'm going to raise him from the grave. And then I'm going to exalt him and bring him to sit at my right hand. And there he will intercede. He will pray for you. And that sacrifice with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are those sinners. And God says to us, turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God asks us to do. That's how you become born again. That's how you become an heir to the kingdom. That's how you become a child of God. And that is what I invite you to this morning. Because this, this meditation that we're talking about is, is nonsensical outside of that. But as a follower, as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus, this will connect to your spirit. It will connect because God was so good that Jesus said, when I go and sit with the Father, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to teach you everything that you need to know that you didn't know when I was with you. And that includes this idea of meditation on the things of God. What an incredible picture, church. So, let me ask you this. How should the Christian go about this disciple of meditation? Well, the first step is to rehearse in one's mind the presence of God. I read to you this morning Psalm 139, and I would encourage you when this message is open, go and read that again for yourself and meditate on it for a while. Rehearse in your mind the presence of God. Think about this for a minute, church. It's so incredible. We talk about two things in theological teaching. We talk about transcendence. Transcendence means that God is bigger than anything this mind can imagine. There are no limits to God. There are no boundaries to God. There is no time for God. God is so big. But yet this big God can be eminent. This big God is near to us this morning. You're not hearing my voice this morning. I pray that the scriptures are just, are just pouring over your spirits and the Holy Spirit is whispering into your spirits. Rehearse the presence of God. Focus your attention on the inescapable presence, the intimate nearness of God. And you know, sometimes we get hooked up on posture, we get hooked up on time, we get hooked up on places. Can I say something to you, church? Those are secondary. It's not that they're unimportant, but they're secondary. The only suggestion would, would be to do whatever you do to be more focused, to be in an area that's more conducive to concentration. That would be a suggestion that I would make. Get to a place where you can be by yourself, okay? Break it down. If posture is uncomfortable, change it. If time of day or night is inconvenient, change it. If the place that you've chosen exposes you to repeated interruptions and distractions, move it. You know, I enjoy watching football on TV as much as the next guy. But listen, trying to engage with God's Word in the middle of a huddle is hardly an effective way to experience God. Okay, I'm just throwing that out for whatever. Whatever. 
Step two, the second step, church, is to peruse. So the first one is to rehearse in one's mind the presence of God, developing this this discipline of meditation, peruse. By this I mean read, repeat the reading, write it out, then rewrite it. Got it? Read, repeat the reading, write it out, rewrite it. We must keep in mind the difference. Church, this is critical. Hang with me here. It's critical. The difference between informative reading of the Scriptures and formative reading. What do you mean by that, Pastor John? The informative reading focuses on the gathering of information, the increase of knowledge, the collection and memorization of data. The purpose of formative reading is to be formed and shaped by the text through the work of the Holy Spirit. With informative reading, I'm in control of the text. With formative reading, the text controls me. Now, am I saying it's an either or? No, it's a both and. But what I'm saying today, a lot of us, what we do is we focus on the the other one, the idea of knowledge, collection, memorization of data. And so what I used to tell my, my counselees when I was talking to them is, look, it's one thing to read the text. It's another thing to let the text read you. I can't tell you how many times God has changed my mind in the middle of a thought process by letting the text read my heart. And I can't tell you how many times that God has used people to do that same thing who are saturated with the Word of God and have the boldness to come to a brother or sister and say, we need to talk. But that's that meditating, marinating on that Scripture. The next thing I would say about developing, it also helps to apply your sanctified imaginations and your senses to the truth of the text. It's not cold, y'all. You know, people say, Bible is boring. Man, you know, I've been looking at this thing for 37 years. (laughs) Nothing boring about the Bible. Nothing boring about the Bible. And I thank God it's not because it's Him, not me. But listen, envision yourself personally engaged in the relationship or encounter or experience with which the text speaks. Have you ever done that? Hear the words as they are spoken. Listen, feel the touch of Jesus on that diseased body. Taste, smell the fish and the bread as they're served to the multitudes. Hey, there's nothing magical or mysterious in this. The purpose of the sanctified imagination is not, as some have argued, to create our own reality. Our sanctified imagination is a function of our minds whereby we experience more intimately and powerfully the reality God has created. And as you're doing so, reflect on the truth of the Word. Brood over the truth of the Word. Absorb it. Soak it in. And as you turn it over and over in your mind. You know, one of those texts for me is John 4. The woman at the well. Brother John, you're not a woman. Hey, let me tell you something. I can relate to where she was. I know what it's like to feel like an outcast. I know what it's like to know that something's not quite right in my my life. I know what it's like to have to go someplace being afraid that somebody's going to be there that knows me. (laughs) I know what those things are like. 
And that encounter with that woman at the well, let me tell you something, I could feel the heat of the day. I could feel the, 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 under, the underpinning of the sin that was inside of her as she engaged with this prophet who later elevated her to the I am, the living water. Oh, man, I can taste that water even now. That's part of developing this, this meditation discipline. The final steps can be summarized this way, church. Four words. Pray, praise, personalized practice. Pray, praise, personalized practice. It's difficult to know when meditation moves into prayer, brothers and sisters. It's not really that important. Let me say that. But at, the same, but at some point, take the truth as the Holy Spirit has illumined it. Pray it back to God. Take that truth and pray it back to God, whether in petition, personal needs and needs of others, thanksgiving, giving thanks, uh, grateful acknowledge of favor, or intercession, praying on the behalf of others. In other words, take the Scriptures and turn it into a dialogue with God. Praise, then worship. Worship the Lord for who He is and what He's done and how it's been revealed to you in the Scriptures. Meditation ought always to lead us to adoration and celebration of God. Think about it, church. I mean, you know, if you think about the negative, think about the things that lead you to distress. Think about the things that lead you to worry. Think about the things that lead you to anxiety. Take that same thinking process, that same thought process, and mull and meditate and absorb the Word of God and see what that does to your thinking and to your praise. i got to tell you something, church. Sometimes I think we're a little dry on our praise. You know, this morning I had to turn on the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. I needed to get some praise. I had to get my praise on. So there's nothing wrong with that. Listen, personalize, and we talked about that briefly. When possible and according to sound principles of biblical interpretation, replace proper names and personal pronouns with your name. God never intended for His Word to float aimlessly in interpersonal abstractions. Listen, God designed it for you and for me. One of my texts that I do that in an example, and you've heard me do it, is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, where it says what? You are chosen. Put your name there. John is chosen. You are redeemed. John is redeemed. There is nothing wrong with that because you are the you. In that text, personalize it. Practice it. Practice it. Commit yourself to doing what the Word commands. Church, I would suggest to us that the aim of meditation is moral transformation. You can write that down. The aim of meditation is moral transfer, uh, uh, transformation. The aim of contemplation is obedience. Hello. And in obedience is joy inexpressible and full of glory. Hallelujah. Meditation in the Bible means reflective thinking on biblical truth so that God is able to speak to us through Scripture and through the thoughts that come to mind as we are reflecting on the Word but that word, that word must also be filtered by the word. Did you catch that? It's not what I think. It's that word being filtered by the word. God told me. Let me tell you something. If a man stands in the pulpit and said, God told me if I cannot go to the scripture and verify in the word of God that that's what God said, I'm going to let that prophecy go and I'm going to stick with the word of God and I encourage you to do the same. Filter it through the word. 
Let's get more practical. And I'm coming to a close. The objectives of meditation are simple. Church worship. Meditation is designed to focus us on the Lord and His works. It's a place and a space in our lives for communion with God. It means, it, it, it's a means of elevating the spiritual over the material world and the world of activity. You know, uh, Chris and I were talking on Wednesday night. You know, we're bombarded with so much today. This idea of meditation allows us to step back from that and to, and to let our hearts rest in the Lord. To take us out of the hustle and the bustle and the coming and the going of the world. It's designed for instruction. It's designed to improve our understanding of the Word of the God and the ways it applies to our lives. Listen, understanding comes from meditations of His heart. In meditation, we exchange our thoughts for God's thoughts. Motivation or encouragement. Meditation is designed to motivate and inspire us in our service and courage for works of God. How do I know that? We read in Joshua 1, 7 and 8. What did God do? Where did God start? Remember where God starts. What does He say in the Bible? Time after time to the nation of Israel, before anything else happens, what does God say? Do you know the word? It's an R word. Remember. Remember. Remember what? There it is. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember where I've taken you from. Remember. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. But meditate day and night. And the last is transformation, church. Meditation is a spiritual discipline. It's serious because it's designed to transform and change our lives. It's designed to transform and change our lives. Now, church, I love you to death, but I want to give us a loving warning as I get to the end of my message. The church today is filled with what I call sensuous Christians. A sensuous Christian church is one who lives by his feelings rather than through his understanding of the Word of God. A sensuous Christian cannot be moved to service, prayer, or study unless she feels like it. A sensuous Christian thinks he does not need to study or meditate on the Word because he operates by his feelings. A sensuous Christian does not want to know God. She wants only to experience God. Hmm. Listen, without the knowledge of the word, however, not one of us can be sure of his, his or her experience. Do you hear what I said? Without knowledge of the word, no one can be sure about that experience. It may have a demonic and a purely fleshly leading. You know, the late R.C. Sproul said this, and I'm going to share it with you. I loved it. The Bible is addressed primarily, though not exclusively, to our understanding. That means the mind. This is difficult to communicate to modern Christians who are living in what may be the most anti-intellectual period of Western civilization. Notice I did not say anti-academic or anti-technological or anti-scholarly. I said anti-intellectual. There is a strong current of antipathy to the function of the mind in the Christian life. 
We turn to feelings rather than to our minds to establish and preserve our faith. He goes on to say, this is a profoundly serious problem we face in the 21st century church. Reflect for a moment. What happens in your own life when you act according to what you feel like? Rather than doing what you know and understand, God says you should do. How's that work out for you? And here, church, we encounter the ruthless reality of the differences between happiness and pleasure. How easy it is to confuse the two. The pursuit of happiness is regarded as an unalienable right. But happiness and pleasure are not the same thing. Both feel good, but one endures. Sin can bring pleasure, but never happiness. Listen, church, if sin were not so pleasurable, it would hardly represent a temptation. Just saying. It is precisely at the point of discerning the difference between pleasure and happiness that the knowledge of Scripture is so vital. There's a remarkable relationship between God's will and human happiness, meditation. The fundamental deception of Satan is the lie. Church, hear me if you hear nothing else today. The fundamental deception of Satan is the lie that obedience can never bring happiness. Obedience can never bring happiness. From the primordial temptation of Adam and Eve to last night's satanic seduction, the lie has been the same. In a nutshell, here's that lie. If you do what God says, you will not be happy. If you do what I say, you will be liberated and no happiness. Church, I know there's been a lot this morning, but on a side note, do yourself a study. Do, do yourself a favor. Do a word study on the word blessed in the scripture. Do you want to find out what happiness means from a biblical perspective? Meditate on the word blessed in the scriptures and go find out what that means. Blessed is the man who meditates on the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who follows the precepts of the Lord. Blessed is the man who meditates on the word of the Lord. Go check that out. We must always remember at this point is that those who live by their feelings will not spend time meditating on the word. And if they do, it will be for an emotional high rather than for truly knowing God and obedience to him. So in closing, meditation is the missing link. As I hope you've seen, meditation on the scriptures has occupied a very deep and enduring place in the history of the church as one of the most enjoyed means of God's grace for his people. The funny thing is, is how many of you practice it? How many of us do it? And you say, well, I do it all the time. But how many of us do it well? How many of us do it consistently? That's the question. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying, we need this. It's something that God has gifted to us, this gift of meditation. In particular, I like, I read a lot about the Puritans. Now you read some of the Puritans? Yeah. The Puritans celebrated the gift of meditation as much as any, and they drew attention to the very vital relationship with hearing God's voice, Bible intake, and having his ear, prayer. 
And I want to offer a final quote from Thomas Watson. I pray it moves us, church, toward a renewed desire to practice Christian meditation as we seek to discipline ourselves toward godliness. What's the purpose of it all? To discipline ourselves toward godliness. Thomas Watson writes, the reason that we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. Meditate on that for a minute. Meditation then for the Christian brothers and sisters is a discipline that has been a that has been a certain function related to other disciplines. It does not stand alone. It's not hermetically sealed from God's revelation of himself in the Bible or our reverential response to him in prayer. Rather, meditation, listen, meditation bridges the gap between hearing from God and speaking to God. It bridges the gap from hearing from God to speaking to God. In meditation, we pause and reflect over his words. We roll them over in our minds and let them ignite our hearts. We warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. We pose questions. We seek answers. We go deep into God's revelation. We take it into our very souls. And as we're being changed by his truth, we respond to him in prayer. I end with one of my heroes in the faith, George Mueller, a humble prayer warrior. And this word resonates with my current season in life. It might not with yours, but it does with mine. And George says this, we may profitably meditate with God's blessing, although we are spiritually weak. The weaker we are, the more meditation we need to strengthen our inner man. Meditation on God's word has given me the help, listen church, the strength to pass peaceably through deep trials. Let's pray. I thank you, Father. I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. I confess, Father, that meditation and prayer are not always my go-to in difficult times. But still, they have been a source of encouragement, faith building, and hope. I thank you, Father, that your spirit keeps them ever before us. I thank you, Father, that we are without excuse because of their presence. I pray, Father, that this word will deepen your children's desire to love the Lord their God with all of their hearts, their minds, their soul, and their strength. I ask that your Holy Spirit invite us to eat joyfully from the bread of life and to be refreshed by the eternal flow of living water and that the resulting fruit from your vineyard will be pleasing in your sight, our God and our Redeemer. Father, may you be exalted, glorified, and made much of by and through your people. In Jesus' name, amen.